KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power, welcoming the renowned Jack Quartet to San Diego for an evening of music titled Modern Medieval with works by Caroline Shaw, Morton Feldman, and more. Monday, May 6th at The Loft at UC San Diego, artpower.ucsd.edu. The San Diego mayor's race offers voters a choice. Who occupies the most powerful position in city government matters now more than ever. I'm Alison St. John, along with Maureen Kavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Our ballots are arriving in the mail, and voting begins this week in San Diego. We are only as going to be as good as voters once they receive their ballot to vote it and get it back to us for us to be able to process it all the way through. That is verify it, opening it, extracting the ballot out. How do wildfire risks currently affect decisions about where to build new homes? And the lack of affordable housing is affecting thousands of children growing up home insecure. That's all ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating and Air, Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating and air and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980. With their fleet of trained professionals, Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com. Because we know how. Among the most consequential races in San Diego this election season is the race for San Diego mayor. Both candidates, Assemblymember Todd Gloria and City Council Member Barbara Bree, are Democrats. But KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen says their priorities are quite different. What? I made an omelet. <laughs> it's just past 10 a.m. and Todd Gloria is volunteering at a North Park cafe, preparing meals for seniors. He's still working on his omelet flipping technique. <laughs> Do you see that? Anybody? Anybody? Did you catch that? <laughs> the program is called Great Plates Delivered. The state of California pays restaurants to prepare and deliver meals to older adults who are stuck at home because of COVID-19. Gloria strikes up a conversation with the chef, who says he's working three jobs to keep his family afloat. Gloria later tells me he can sympathize. I grew up in a working class family. I rode the bus as a young man. I understand what a lot of folks uh, must do uh, to get by. Before he was elected to the state assembly, Gloria served on the San Diego City Council for eight years, including six months as interim mayor. As the COVID-19 pandemic takes its toll on the city budget, Gloria says this is an area where he has relevant experience. I served as the city's budget chair for six of the eight years that I was at City Hall. We were able to take the city from massive budget deficits resulting from the Great Recession, turn them into surpluses and reserves uh, that thankfully will help uh, mitigate some of the cuts that will be necessary going forward. I would point out uh, that the city was running a deficit prior to the pandemic, a really reflection of, I think, the poor fiscal stewardship over the last four years by this mayor and by my opponent, who is the chair of the Budget Committee. Great. Well, I'm honored to have your vote, and thank you very much for coming to get a yard sign. Gloria's opponent is City Council Member Barbara Bree. We meet her at the home of a supporter as she's handing out yard signs and talking with a group of her backers. 
Are you, and you have a cat, too. We have two cats, yeah. four dogs. Wow! <laughs> Bree was elected to the council in 2016. Before politics, she had a successful business career, co-founding an e-commerce company and incubating other tech startups. She says she's proud of helping sink the Soccer City ballot measure in 2018, demanding an independent audit of the city's overbilling of water customers and asking tough questions about the city's bad record on real estate deals. So I'm running for mayor, first of all, to bring accountability and transparency to City Hall, to lead an inclusive economic recovery as we come out of the COVID-19 pandemic, which has exemplified our existing inequities. And it's why I believe my private sector experience is so important in creating jobs in terms of how we're going to have an economy that's going to get everybody back to work. Bree's platform includes banning dockless scooter sharing companies and short-term home rentals. She says she supports increasing density near public transit stops as a way to alleviate the city's housing crisis, but opposes allowing duplexes in neighborhoods otherwise restricted to low-density housing. Bree still hasn't decided how she'll vote this election on Measure A, which would allow the city to issue bonds to fund affordable housing. She says the measure's increase to property taxes gives her pause. And Andrew, when we raise property taxes, somebody pays. I mean, homeowners pay, renters pay, it's all passed on. So we're in the middle of a pandemic. What I might have done six months ago, different than what, why I'm still thinking today because we still have many San Diegans out of work. And this, this is, could be a very challenging time to raise taxes. Gloria supports Measure A and says when San Diego is tasked with tackling big problems like homelessness, later too often becomes never. You know, even in this pandemic, even in this recession, uh, even with people marching in the streets, the most common thing that is shared with me as a concern by San Diegans is homelessness. Uh, they see thousands of our neighbors sleeping outdoors, unsheltered, and they want something done about it. This is a way we can do something about it. San Diego's next mayor will face more than just a massive budget deficit at the city. Unemployment is still higher than its peak during the Great Recession. Thousands of families could face eviction, making the homelessness crisis even worse. Who occupies the most powerful position in city government matters now more than ever. Andrew Bowen, KPBS News. We're joined now by KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Andrew, thanks for zooming in. Pleasure. My pleasure, Allison. So now, as you point out in your piece, both these candidates are Democrats, but they have different backgrounds and priorities. You know, Todd Gloria has been volunteering for political causes since his teens, spent his whole career in public office and lives in Mission Hills, while Barbara Breeze is a successful businesswoman who lives in La Jolla. How would you say their backgrounds affect where they're coming from politically? Well, Bree definitely talks about her private sector experience a lot and that business acumen, uh, you know, preparing her for uh, running a government, knowing how to run a budget. Um, She also founded uh, more than one organization to empower women in leadership, um, uh, both in the government and in the private sector. Um, In her announcement video, which was, uh, gosh, all like January of last year, I think, um, she acknowledged her own privilege. She said she's white. She had an MBA from the Harvard Business School when she was um, starting her career as an entrepreneur. And so there were a lot of open doors. And she wants to make that opportunity available to everyone, regardless of their background. 
Um, Gloria often talks about his humble beginnings. He says he's the son of a maid and a gardener. And, um, you know, his family was able to work its way into the middle class at a time when home ownership was more accessible in San Diego. And he wants to um, bring that back. He, um, you know, you can see uh, that background and some of the issues that he's advocated for, for example, the minimum wage increase in San Diego, which he passed as um, interim mayor. It was then uh, excuse me, he passed when he was on the council. It was uh, vetoed by the mayor, then overturned by a, the council and eventually referendized and approved by voters. And he says, you know, that's kind of an example of his stick to And um, in regards to his public service uh, career, he says, he, you know, Bree has criticized him as being, you know, in government his whole life. And he says, well, he shouldn't be expected to apologize for that. He's proud of the work that he's done. He has very direct experience doing this job, running the city. He was interim mayor for six months. And um, I think it's worth saying also that he would be the first gay mayor in San Diego, openly gay mayor. And he's definitely been drawn to issues affecting the LGBT community, um, including access to HIV treatment at the state level. Okay, now a key issue in the race is their vision for how San Diego grows. Sum up how they differ on where to increase housing density. Well, the whole discourse around housing and density has really shifted in San Diego recently uh, to the point where it's no longer acceptable to just say no to it. Uh, Both of them say they support adding density near public transit in general. Um, But when you get to the specifics, Bree, I think, is pretty clearly the less friendly candidate to growth and development. She points to her support for community plan updates, which have increased density in a lot of neighborhoods, as evidence that she's not anti-growth. She also voted against a parking reform, which would have allowed more homes with fewer parking spaces when a project is near uh, transit. Gloria supported that. Uh, She opposes Measure E to raise the height limit in Midway that would allow for a lot more density there, and uh, Gloria supports that. Um, She's voted against some uh, pretty controversial uh, housing proposals and projects, for example, a 400-unit complex in Claremont that was 100% affordable and low-income, and she was the only no vote on that one. Um, Just last week, she voted against a 50-unit mixed-income apartment building in Carmel Mountain Ranch. So I think Gloria actually has a track record of supporting growth and density, even when it's upset some of his own constituents. And so when you look at their records, the way that they talk about housing and growth, I think if the question is who is more pro-housing and more willing to to make the sometimes unpopular decisions around growth, I think Gloria is probably uh, that candidate. Now, they differ on Prop A. That's the measure on the ballot that would raise $900 million from increased property taxes to build thousands of new subsidized affordable housing. Briefly, where do they differ? Well, Gloria supports it, and Bree hasn't uh, decided yet, As at least as of when we spoke uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, she voted to put this measure on the ballot, but she um, is uh, concerned about uh, raising property taxes at this time. And I think um, her hesitation... Uh, is is kind of where you see Bree's moderate to conservative side coming through. Um, she's definitely appealed to more conservative voters in the city and, and in the rhetoric and the position she's taking, you can you can see that. Um, Gloria says, you know, this is the best chance that San Diego has to make a serious dent in our affordable housing shortage and our homelessness crisis. And, and we just have to to um, say yes, because if we wait too long, you know, uh, sometimes, as, as you heard in the feature, um, never become, uh, later becomes never in San Diego. And finally, in the half minute we have left, Todd Gloria came out ahead in the primary, but Bree managed to defeat Republican Scott Sherman to come in second. So how has their fundraising gone and what do polls say about their chances? 
Yeah, polls are kind of a mixed bag. You know, um, there was a poll earlier that was done by the UT and 10 News that showed Bree ahead by a few points. Uh, it was later criticized as overrepresenting Republicans. So not sure, you know, how much we can read into that. Um, it, as far as fundraising, there was uh, one report where Bree was ahead. And then the, the following fundraising report, Todd Gloria was ahead. So um, in terms of money, uh, I think Gloria clearly has more money in the bank, and he's definitely got more support from these outside um, political action committees that will be spending on his behalf. Uh, but, you know, obviously the most important poll is the one on Election Day. An exciting race. Andrew, thanks so much. Thank you, Allison. We've been speaking with KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. After the strangest election season in living memory, voting finally begins this week in San Diego. Registered voters can drop their mail-in ballots in the mail or deliver them to various drop-off locations as soon as tomorrow. And there are some important changes involved in the voting process this year, especially for people who choose to cast their ballots in person at a polling place. KPBS reporter Shalina Chetlani is here to explain. And Shalina, welcome. Hey, glad to be here. Now, you spoke with San Diego County Registrar of Voters, Michael Vu, about the changes in this year's voting. First of all, is voter registration up in San Diego since 2016? Yeah, it's up about 13%. So the number of registered voters in San Diego County hovers around 1.9 million people. And what's the expected turnout in this election? So from his latest briefing, uh, Registrar of Voters Michael Vu says the expected turnout is at about 80 percent. Now, this year, because of coronavirus, every registered voter is getting a ballot in the mail. What do voters need to know about those mail-in ballots? What Vu emphasized is that as soon as voters get them, they can fill them out and return it to the mailbox or whatever polling site um, is close by, um, you know, as soon as they can. And, And one of the ways that he emphasizes by which voters can return those ballots is through USPS, the U.S. Postal Service. And he says it's very safe. Um, It's going to get to the location it needs. um, And they're going to be following safety protocols as they normally do in every election year to make sure that the ballots are opened and verified and processed appropriately. But there are also other ways to return those mail-in ballots besides the post office. Yes, there are different ways of returning those ballots. And Michael Vu kind of explains how that's different from the years prior. Where we've doubled the total number of drop-off locations than we did in March, and the total amount of time that they will be open is four times as long compared to March. So that's a big change from 2016, even 2018. And this year, the registrar's office was given a much longer stretch of time to actually receive mail-in ballots. Tell us about that. Right. So he says that ballots can be received up to 17 days after November 3rd, Election Day, as long as it's postmarked by then. And so he says it's the responsibility of voters to make sure that the ballot counting goes as smoothly as possible. And the way they do that, he says, is by getting it back as quickly as they can. We are only as going to be as good as voters once they receive their ballot to vote it and get it back to us for us to be able to process it all the way through. That is verify it, opening it, extracting the ballot out. So people also have to take responsibility to make sure their ballot is counted as smoothly as possible. Let's let's talk about in-person voting, because that, of course, is still available, but it's different this year. How is it different? So in-person voting 
will be different for some obvious reasons. For example, if you decide to go to the county registrar's office, of course, you will be asked to wear a mask and socially distance. And if you decide that you don't want to wear a mask, you will be directed to a site called curbside voting, um, where you can cast your ballot without a mask. And there will be people who are around who will be handing out PPE, um, personal protective equipment, like gloves and masks if you don't show up with those items, and people sort of guiding voters on, on what they should be doing. Now, another big difference is that because of these regulations, normally there are over a thousand polling locations, but this time those are being consolidated into large spaces where people can socially distance um, while they're inside casting their ballot. Here's what Vu has to say about that. There will be fewer polling locations than there have been in the past. Um, normally, we would conduct this uh, upcoming election with approximately 1,600 neighborhood polling places. Uh, but because of the pandemic, uh, we are now consolidating those into 235 super polls locations. How do people find out where these super poll locations are? So if you go to the County Registrar of Voters website online, um, you'll see a link that, uh, you know, gives you options for how to return your ballot. It'll tell you where you can return it by mail, but it'll also tell you where you can go to your polling location. So if you click on that link, you can enter your house number, your street name and your address and submit it and it'll tell you where your closest polling location is. And in-person voting at these polling places is not restricted to Election Day on November 3rd this year. Doesn't it begin earlier? It does begin earlier. So it'll begin four days before Election Day on October 31st. And that's to give people the option to socially distance more. So there's not going to be a surge of people all at once on election day. And so that's giving people a little bit more flexibility. If they don't feel like they want to return it by mail, they do want to go in person, that's going to open up the time for them to do it safely. Thank you so much for uh, explaining that to us. I've been speaking with KPBS reporter Shalina Chatlani. Shalina, thanks. Thanks for having me. For information on the candidates and issues on your ballot, check out the KPBS Voter's Guide at kpbs.org slash election. KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating, and Air Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating and air and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980 with their fleet of trained professionals. Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com. Because we know how. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh. California's disastrous wildfire season is now one for the record books. Roughly 4 million acres have burned. That is far and away the largest area destroyed in one season in modern California history. Climate change has been named as the major culprit in the state's bigger, hotter, faster-moving wildfires in recent years. But a new report finds another and potentially manageable cause of these tremendous fires— that is, 
where California is building new homes and the fire safety measures required in that construction. Joining me is reporter Elizabeth Weil, co-author of an investigative report on wildfire and California housing policy published by ProPublica. And Elizabeth, welcome to the program. Thank you. So much attention has been given to climate change as the crucial element in our devastating wildfires, and rightly so. But what role does backcountry development play in sparking those fires? Well, it plays a very large role. Um, Climate change, of course, underlies this all. Our heating planet and weather patterns are making it worse. But where humans live in our environment makes a tremendous difference in both where wildfires start, how many homes and lives are lost in those fires, how difficult those fires are to fight once they do start, and how possible it is to manage the landscape well in a sort of preventative medicine way before fires start at all. And in your article, there's this figure that 95% of wildfires are caused by humans. Yes. So the landscape does need to burn. California is a Mediterranean landscape and fire is a natural part of that landscape. But yes, 95% of fires are sparked by humans. Someone drives down the road, a spark flies from something, somebody starts a barbecue. As we all know, PG&E has started an awful lot of fires in the state. So the ignitions almost always are human caused. So when you have more humans living in an environment, the more likely it is that fires will start. What's driving the development of homes in the backcountry or the wildland urban interface area as it's called? Yes, it's a mouthful, the wildland urban interface. Well, California has a housing crisis, as we all know. So the state desperately needs housing, housing in a lot of coastal urban centers is extremely expensive. So people for financial reasons often move further and further away from those cities uh, into areas that are now known as the WUI, the wildland urban interface. And of course, those areas are often beautiful and people like living there. So there are many reasons people are getting pushed outward, but housing policy is a very large part of it. When housing developments are planned, Is there any state requirement that the wildfire risk needs to be assessed? You know, there are many different requirements in different uh, municipalities, but this week Newsom vetoed a bill that for the first time would have made wildfire risks or part of what's known as the housing allocation process. It's very detailed and arcane and that part is not important, but as of now, wildfire is not wildfire risk is not considered in where housing needs to be developed in California. And the experts you spoke with said that it's really necessary to have a requirement at the state level about that. What is their reasoning? Well, most most housing decisions are made on the local level and therefore are very influenced by local politics. So for better or worse, a lot of more affluent suburbs and cities are very resistant to housing. There are a lot of underpinnings to this, but people will say traffic is already bad and their schools are already underfunded and their public transportation already isn't good enough. And many other reasons that often housing is resisted. 
So that becomes part of the issue at the local level, that if you leave it up to the locals and they don't want housing, it won't get built. But if there's state oversight, sort of looking at the big picture in California and what needs to happen, we might move in the right direction more quickly. Now, in your report, you say that it would not be possible to stop people from living in these remote areas. 11 million people in the state live in the wildland-urban interface. But are there ways to make the houses safer? Yes, there are many ways to make the houses safer. Uh, and I highly recommend to listeners if they live in a fire-prone area to just you know look it up. But the first and most important thing to do is make sure you have a good roof, that you have a roof that is flame resistant. Most houses burn because embers blow in the wind and land on somebody's roof and the house burns down. As fire people often like to say, houses don't burn up, they burn down. So that's the first thing. And then people will find that they should clear vegetation out from around their houses. So if an ember flies, the house is less likely to burn. There are a lot of fairly simple things that homeowners can do to make their own homes safer. And a lot of experts believe that the community level of organization is really the most important thing relative to keeping our neighborhoods safe. That if one house burns, the next house is more likely to burn. But if your neighborhood can get together and everybody make your homes fire safe together, you'll really put yourself at far less risk. I have been speaking with ProPublica reporter Elizabeth Weil. And Elizabeth, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. A whole generation of children is going through the coronavirus pandemic. The educational challenge of distance learning is talked about a lot, but an even more basic challenge is facing the thousands of children who are chronically homeless and don't have anywhere safe and secure to quarantine. San Diego's Housing Federation, which advocates for the construction of affordable housing, is holding its 30th annual conference this week, and one of the keynote speakers is Dr. Megan Sandel who is co-director of the Grow Clinic at Boston Medical Center and has been researching children and homelessness for years. Dr. Sandel, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So start off, how, how much of the homeless population around the country is estimated to be children? Yeah, so we estimate actually that there are close to 8 million children that are both either homeless or housing unstable. What we now understand is that simple things like falling behind on rent often force families to make tough choices between, say, rent and food or heat or cooling costs. And so I think it's really essential for us when we talk about the impact on children and families, we don't just isolate it to homelessness, we talk about all forms of housing instability. Yes, good point, because when people think about homelessness, they often think of people living either on the streets or in a shelter, but that may not be where many children who are homeless are actually living. Um, Our regional task force for the homeless in San Diego said there were 223 homeless youth on the streets at last count. But the San Diego Unified School District says up to 9,000 of the 100,000 children they educate are technically homeless. 
Yeah, I think that what's really important to understand is that you're right, there are many forms of homelessness. There can be the frank homelessness where you'll see a family out in a tent or on the street, but there also are people that are moving frequently. They may be sleeping in a family member's living room and moving from house to house. They may be living overcrowded in a single room in an apartment that they're renting. And that overcrowding can place them at risk, particularly right now as we understand the virus and how um, it can spread in housing um, apartments when families are overcrowded. And so when you think about kind of what we're asking home to be right now, it is supposed to be where you learn. It's supposed to be sometimes where you work from. It's where you need to rest. And our understanding of the toxic stress, the stress of always being worried about where are you going to sleep at night is something that not only affects, you know, a children, but it affects their parents and affects all interactions. What effects does this have on their health, specifically now during the pandemic? Absolutely. So our understanding is not only that it can affect their physical health. So say kids have asthma and they're living in overcrowded situations where there may be other toxic exposures can affect their sleep. It can affect their food insecurity. It can ex- affect their mental health. And then we understand that it affects their parents. Their parents may have higher rates of depression or anxiety, and that can impact how they parent and therefore how their kids are doing. Um, I think that what's really important is that we not only understand it for the physical health, but we understand it for the mental health aspects. And we know that it can affect everyone in the household itself. You've written that during this pandemic, we've seen families who are homeless presenting to the emergency department without any medical complaints, simply because of a lack of housing. So Some families are so desperate just to find a place to be that they go to the hospital emergency room. I think our emergency departments are on the front lines where families have no place to go and don't have a safe place to sleep. And so they'll come and sleep in our ED overnight. And so we really need to be able to invest in important measures. Um, In San Diego, Measure A is going to be really critical for investing in those housing prescriptions. And Measure A would raise about $900 million in order to build uh, hundreds of affordable homes. Uh, you're in Boston and you talk about a program in your hometown where the, the housing authority and the public schools partnered to house 1,000 families of public school kids uh, at risk of homelessness. Where did the money come from that and has it been effective? Yeah, so we have started um, uh, partnerships between our local housing authority, our hospital, and other uh, important social service agencies where oftentimes housing vouchers can be difficult to use. Many landlords um, may not be ready to accept them. And so we created a special partnership where we were able to identify the families, get all of the um, paperwork and other types of certifications they needed, and be able to identify the landlords that were then willing to take those vouchers. And we actually uh, showed in a health affairs article that we were able to start to reduce um, families' anxiety and depression symptoms, and we were able to improve children's health just by being able to get them that stable, decent, affordable home. The the pandemic is, of course, shedding lights on the pace of racial and economic disparities that we experience in our communities. Um, what What has your research discovered about this and how it's affecting children? 
housing is probably the biggest illustrator of, of structural racism um, because of historical ways in which certain families were preferenced to be able to buy houses and build uh, generational wealth and others were really uh, functionally shut out of those systems. I think what's exciting about being able to potentially build more affordable housing is, is that it gives that opportunity for families to be able to get into those systems and to be able to create some of that wealth. And it's something that actually stimulates the economy. Those are jobs that people are going to be able to have so that I think it's, I often say affordable housing is the triple bottom line, right? You have a stable home, it improves people's health. You actually create jobs and you actually stimulate the economy and you actually improve being able to have kids in school and to be able to have their parents at work. So you are going to be a keynote speaker at the San Diego Housing Federation conference this week. They, they are advocating for more affordable housing being built. What is the main point that you want to get across? I do think we need to kind of reframe this from kind of the zero sum game. What do you get? What do I give up? to what do we all gain by being together? San Diego is at a real cusp point where the community can really pivot up and, and be able to start to, to build that foundation for everyone to be safe. Um, or I think that we can continue this kind of spiral of just not skyrocketing rents, people not being able to stay in the community, people not being able to, to find jobs. Well, thank you for your perspective on this very challenging problem, Dr. Sandel. Thank you so much for having me, and I hope people will join us on Wednesday for the keynote. We've been speaking with Dr. Megan Sandel, co-director of the Grow Clinic at Boston Medical Center. About 6,000 undocumented immigrants held by U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement have tested positive for COVID, including hundreds detained in California. And some detainees said they were quarantined in solitary confinement for weeks. KQED's Farida Jabala Romero spoke to one of those detainees and has this story. On August 4th, at least six people in dorm B at Mesa Verde, a detention center in Bakersfield, were diagnosed with COVID-19, and staffers cleared the dorm to house only sick people. Alton Edmondson, a construction worker from Jamaica, had tested negative. But guards didn't move him to another dorm. They took him to an intake cell. Edmondson says it's a small, windowless room with a toilet but no bed. It was hard though because... They, they served me food through, the, through, through a hole, like, on the door, and it made me feel like I'm a terrorist or something. ISIS standards say people must not be kept in one of these hold rooms for more than 12 hours. But Edmondson says officials left him there for seven days. Then, court documents show, they took him to a cell ICE uses for disciplinary segregation. Detainees call it the hole. When they brought me to the hall, um, asked them why they brought me here because I didn't do anything wrong. I said he was being isolated for his own safety, as dozens of people elsewhere in the facility got sick. They wouldn't explain why he could not stay in a dorm with others who tested negative. Edmondson says in total, he spent three weeks confined, alone, for more than 22 hours a day. Yeah, they feel real depressed and sad, you know. Uh, ICE and the GEO Group, the company that owns and operates Mesa Verde, declined to comment on Edmondson's case. 
ISIS pandemic rules say people in medical isolation must not be treated as if they're in solitary confinement. They must get access to medical and mental health care, TV, and reading materials. But advocates say ICE detainees report widespread use of solitary confinement for quarantine during the pandemic. And some don't disclose COVID symptoms for fear of being thrown in the hole. Elizabeth Jordan is an attorney with Civil Rights Education and Enforcement Center in Denver. This is the practice that they're allowing their contractors to to use. And this is really dangerous because it places a serious strain on people's mental health. That strain wore on another detainee at Mesa Verde, says his attorney Trevor Cosmo of Centro Legal de la Raza in Oakland. Chong Wong An was 74 from South Korea. In May, he committed suicide in a medical isolation unit. ICE knew he had a history of suicide attempts, Cosmo says, but didn't check on him as required. I believe that my client, Mr. An, died due to ICE's negligence and because they quarantined him in solitary confinement. The United Nations says solitary confinement should never be permitted for people with mental illness. Cosmo, who also represents Alton Edmondson, says ICE doesn't actually need to lock up people awaiting immigration court hearings. It's completely inhumane, right, to put people in a windowless room for 23 hours to quarantine them. Like, if you can't properly quarantine them, like, they need to release everyone. On September 23rd, Edmondson became one of 140 people a federal judge ordered ICE to release from Mesa Verde due to the pandemic. Yeah, I feel great, and I feel freedom, huh? <laughs> First, he's quarantining at a hotel in Bakersfield on the judge's orders. Next, he'll head home to Georgia, where he's lived most of his two decades in the U.S. He has three U.S.-born sons. Yeah, I want to see my kids, you know? I miss, miss them a lot. He says he hopes talking about his experience will make ICE detention more humane for others. That was KQED reporter Farida Javala Romero. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Allison St. John. Tomorrow night's Scream Fest LA kicks off a season of horror film festivals for October. This year, local San Diego filmmaker Pia Thrasher will have her vampire comedy Things We Dig receive its world premiere at a Scream Fest drive-in event on October 13th. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando talks with the filmmaker about her work. Pia, you and I share a love for horror and for Halloween. This Halloween, though, you do have something to be excited about, which is the fact that you have made a film, Things We Dig, that has been accepted to a number of festivals. So tell me where you're going to be having your world premiere. 
finally, we finally do have one festival that does kind of a, a in-person event, which, well, it's a drive-in theater. And uh, it's gonna be in um, LA, north of LA in Venice for the Scream Fest. LA Film Festival and it'll be making its world premiere and we're super excited. I'm gonna bring some cast and crew with me. It'll be a chance to see the film with a bunch of other horror fanatics. I'm really excited about it. We're gonna have our, we, we actually have a real premiere with a bunch of other really cool horror flicks. So that's, yeah, finally, I'm glad we have that. Then, then there's gonna be a few other, um, uh, there's going to be the Horror House Festival, which is later in October, and we'll have also the um, Northern Frights, which is in Canada, and it'll be uh, shown there. Things We Dig is a mockumentary, and I have to say it's probably influenced a little bit by what we do in the shadows. Oh, big time. <laughs> Deals with vampires. So tell people a little bit about the story. When I first saw what we do in the shadows, I just loved it. I loved the whole format, the whole idea about just a bunch of ordinary ordinary vampires living together and having to deal with regular life stuff. And it made me think, God, what would it be like for four female vampires with all their female issues or whatever you want to call it, living together and, um, and dealing with the now, modern times, because they have different ages, you know. So when I saw that movie, What We Do in the Shadows, I just had a few ideas and I started writing and I'm like okay I'm not gonna make another film no but then I kept writing and finding more stuff and making myself kind of giggle and I'm like oh my god I need to do this so so I wrote a script back in 2016 for uh what, what would have been probably more like a 40 minute movie and uh, and then you know over four years because we had all these problems with locations and everything and and uh, then uh, uh, I got sick and oh all that stuff so finally we filmed it and um, and then of course the TV show What We Do in the Shadows came out and I was scared to watch it. I was like, oh my God, what if there's stuff in there that's in my short film? And But it wasn't, so it's all good. It's all good. So um, that's how it happened and we're here now. All right, I'm gonna play a little clip from the film just so people can get a, a feel for the flavor of it. Uh, so um, yeah, do you uh, have a favorite blood type? Favorite blood type, no. But we have favorite victims. Mm -hmm. I like the ones that are out on the beach all day mm. in the sun. Yummy. Yum. <laughs> Drug people are good. Ooh, nice mm. buzz on those. Mm. Yeah. Drunk mm. surfer dudes are the best. Do you surf? Fangs off, girls. He's mine. For full disclosure, I have to say that I contributed some coffins to your film. And I want you to talk a little bit about it because I gave you some very plain, bland pine wood coffins and you have an amazing art director, production designer who dressed those up quite a bit. So yeah, when, uh, when I was trying to get all my props together and I, need, I knew I needed a, a coffin and I needed a child size coffin. I'm like, where am I gonna get a child size coffin? And so I, of course I asked on Facebook and of course the first thing like, Beth, Beth, <laughs> hello. Duh. So I asked, you know, and you were like, you saved my day and you, I came over to your place and you had this plywood um, child-sized coffin. It was perfect, but it was very plain. So we knew we we're gonna have to dress it up a little bit. So you gave me that, and you gave me this really thick sheet um, of, of um, this cardboard. It's like probably an inch thick or so. 
and says, you know, see what you can do with that, make a lid out of that. And so I brought it all to my production designer, Elsa Mikkelsen, who is, if you're in the San Diego film industry here anywhere, you would know her because she's amazing. She's done so much stuff. Uh, she built the entire vampire coven, like the whole, their whole place in their house. So she basically took this, this coffin and created this amazing uh, elaborate coffin with a lid that has so, so many um, ornaments and, and then she made it golden and then she aged it. And I don't even know how she did it, but she did layers of that cardboard sheet and somehow put it all together. And it's amazing. I still, I can't get over it. It doesn't, it does not look like it's made out of cardboard. It looks like it's made out of some kind of an old metal, you know, uh, and it's all shiny and golden and it's, it's incredible. I couldn't believe it. She's amazing. Elsa Mikkelsen, production designer extraordinaire, all I can say. It wouldn't look the same without her. What are some of the challenges of making a comedy like this where you are using a film crew within a film crew and trying to make it all feel spontaneous and what are some of the challenges of doing that and pulling it off? That was hard because first of all you have to find a balance of, of kind of creepy and humor and it turned out to be a little bit more funny than creepy. I didn't want to do like just a found footage style. So we're actually breaking a bunch of laws here. We're, we're having found footage a little bit from the crew's point of view, but also a narrative camera that is just there to kind of capture everything. So we also like wanted to leave it open for some improv here and there. Yeah, it, it, it was definitely not what I first imagined. Cause at first I wanted to have it kind of like what we do in the shadows, just constantly talking the cameras on like but this we didn't have that time <laughs> we had three days to film the whole thing <laughs> and can you remember what got you interested in horror there wasn't really a specific moment i think i didn't realize that gravitated towards the dark side until somebody pointed out to me that i'm like wednesday adams that i grew up like her and i'm like what do you mean and he said that well, your dad made tombstones for a living and he had tombstones all over the front yard and the backyard and, and all these grave, you know, things that you put on a grave, like the lights and the little water, uh, holy water containers. And, and this was in Germany. So, and I was like, yeah, you're right. I, I think to me it was always normal to deal with the dark side, the death, the unspoken. And we always had, you know, people come to my dad's house to talk about the funeral and the planning. And so I grew up with it and to me it was normal. And I never liked romantic comedies cause I thought they were just, they made me gag. It was just so cheesy, I couldn't take it. So I would go anything but that. And of course the natural reaction is the opposite. So, which was usually the darker side. It made me think more, it made me get into it. It made me focus on my own dark side because we all have one. Some suppress it more than others, <laughs> which is not good for you. You have to let it out. That was Beth Accomando speaking with filmmaker Pia Thrasher. Her film Things We Dig has its world premiere at Screamfest LA on October 13th. You can look for Beth's fleeting appearance in the film as a creepy clown.
KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating and Air, Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating and air and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980 with their fleet of trained professionals. Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com because we know how.